0: Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, we speak with
1: President Jefferson, and he talks about his core principles. A Jefferson Hour listener approached us and said, would we do a program outlining the fundamental principles that Jefferson lived for and try to flesh them out a little? So, belief in public education, belief that the war powers must be deeply constrained, the belief that we should live on ready money and not have a gross national debt, the belief that The people are up to the challenge of self-government and more. He said that people are sovereign and talked about individual self-reliance and talked about the importance of education. And all other freedoms come from freedom of conscience, and so we must have a wall of separation between the human conscience and government.
0: Please join us this week when Jefferson talks about his core principles on the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss historical and current American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. And as always, good to see you, Mr. Jefferson.
1: Good day to you, citizen.
0: Mr. Jefferson, I came across a bit of history. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this gentleman. He was a Scottish historian and professor at the University of Edinburgh. He was born in October 1747. His name was Alexander Teitler, and he's, contemporarily anyway, credited as predicting the fall of America, suggesting that uh, democracies can only last 200 years. He wrote, quote, a democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the majority discovers it can vote itself largesse out of the public treasury. Uh, are you familiar with this, gentlemen? Do you know if this is true?
1: I'm familiar with the concept. And I would say that this is essentially nonsense uh, that democracies can exist as long as the people renew them. But they don't exist in perpetuity if you don't do the sometimes challenging things that are required to keep them alive. And so let me give you a couple of examples of that. You must have a good public education system that trains people in what is at stake. So people need to know their basic documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, etc. and not just to have read them, but to know why they were written in the way that they were and what they were attempting to prevent from happening in our republic, so that's one way to renew. Another way is to renew consent, and most countries have failed to do this, and you have failed to do this. But, but I propose to Madison that we tear up the Constitution every 19 years, and create a new one, and then that would be consented to by ratification. And when you actually consent to a system of government, you have a stake in uh, not only crafting it but also maintaining it, keeping it strong and healthy. And we also need to avoid wars so that we can devote uh, all of the enterprise, all the human resources and the financial resources of the country to the arts of peace, you know, art, sculpture, painting, oratory, uh, architecture, uh, etc. And so there are things we can do to perpetuate our democracy. But if you just create a constitution and, and walk away, it will descend into chaos at some point. It's not clear to me that people will vote themselves benefits from the public till. I know that's a, a frequently argued point. But I don't think that there's much uh, history to prove that that's the case. I think it's apathy uh, more than self-interest which kills a democracy. Uh, Mr. Teitler
0: is not optimistic about the future of, of democracies. Uh, uh, lastly, let me give you his cycle as he saw it. The nations progressed through this sequence From bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to apathy, from apathy to dependence, and from
1: dependence
0: back into bondage. Sounds a bit like Mr. Adams, I think.
1: (laughs) Or worse. I agree with one part of it. Abundance can be a problem. We called it luxury in my time. But once you create a materialist society in which people's basic striving is to accumulate, to bring comforts to themselves, to, to, to add superfluous comforts, that's what we call luxury. And luxury will kill a democracy. There needs to be a certain leanness in a republic. There needs to be a spareness. Not Spartan exactly, but a spareness. And people need to stay close to the soil. You grow some of your own food. You produce some of your own clothing you uh, repair or build your own house, you maintain your own fields, that, that that engagement with the basic business of life is what keeps people close to nature and natural law and prevents them from falling into luxury because the minute you have a luxurious palace, and I admit that in some sense as I did, then your desire is to perpetuate that luxury rather than to perpetuate the principles of a republic
0: very good sir i wish mr titler was here so you could discuss it with him directly but uh, we'll have to look into that for another time i thank you very much mr jefferson
1: stay close to the soil thank you
0: citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with President Thomas Jefferson. Mr. Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay Jenkinson. I'm your host, David Swenson, and seated before me is President Thomas Jefferson. Good to see you today, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, sir. Mr. Jefferson... I'd like to suggest a conversation prompted by a listener, Mr. Tom Bergen. He asked that you discuss what he referred to as your core principles. Would that be all right, sir? Yes. Has he outlined them? He has. And uh, I've got some notes before me. And I'd like to begin the conversation by noting that you spent some 40 years in public service. But when I think of the principles of yours, I think of the epitaph you composed for yourself, which does not mention this public service, you wrote that you wanted, quote, the following inscription and not a word more. Here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of the American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. It was these, you said as testimonials that i have lived i wish to be most remembered these three items sir to me sum up your core principles is that fair
1: well they in some ways encapsulate my core principles i'm not certain that they entirely sum them up i i'd like to make the distinction between public service and public offices i didn't choose to be remembered as the third president of the united states or the first secretary of state or the minister to the court of louis the 16th in france etc those are offices and, and truly i regarded them as you might regard jury duty that this is something you do because it's important that citizens sacrifice their personal happiness for the public good that citizens uh, enable themselves to be called out by their community by their neighbors to perform public services and i was willing to do that not particularly eager i'm something of a homebody But those offices I regarded as important to the development of our republic, but they were not particularly satisfying to me, certainly not as by way of giving me a public reputation. But the achievements that came through some of this, the Declaration of Independence in 1776, I happened then to be a member of the Second Continental Congress, but that office was less important than the thing that I was able to do, which is to write this this document. The Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty is something that I wrote soon after the, the war began, soon after our Declaration of Independence. It wasn't passed into law until 1786. And then largely thanks to the work of my closest friend, James Madison, that Bill, which separates church and state in Virginia, and declares the the human conscience to be utterly free and uncoercible. That is more important than being a sheriff or being a justice of the peace or being even the governor of the state of Virginia. Then finally, in my retirement, I wanted to perpetuate our revolutionary principles. So this gets closer to the idea of core principles than the other two. I wanted to find a way to perpetuate our Republican system, committed to the rights of man, believing that humans are capable of self-government, believing in majority rule. The only way to do that is to educate the next generation. We're born with the, the right to liberty, but we're not born with the skill to govern ourselves. That, that, that takes training. And so the university was in some part designed to pass the values of the American Revolution on to the next generation and the next, and I hope it's still doing so in your time.
0: Let's look at those three in depth, uh, sir. From the Declaration of Independence, I take away the message it's the consent of the governed. Would that be your
1: main point? My main point is that people have a right to revolution that everyone is governed, no matter where you happen to be born on earth, whether it's in Ceylon or uh, Moscow, you will be governed. There is some social compact there. It may be a tyrannical one, it may be an appalling one, but there is a system of government. So people have the right to either leave that that jurisprudence, to, to emigrate and go somewhere where life is better attended to, Or they have the right to overthrow that government if it doesn't pay attention to their rights and their needs. So, yes, there's a social compact. People have a right to self-determination. That's central to the Declaration of Independence. But even more important is that if their government becomes sloppy, confiscatory, inefficient, wasteful, impudent, if it begins to trample on their rights the people have not only a right to overthrow that government, but in some circumstances, a moral duty to overthrow that government. And as I put it, institute new government more in line with their aspirations. And so it's a revolutionary document that argues in the public sphere that we have a right to revolution under certain circumstances.
0: Well, then let's look at the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. Uh, Obviously, it is geared towards religious freedom, but I take away that it's of reason and free inquiry.
1: Yes. Each of us is born into a a community. Almost every community has a religious structure of some sort. I happened to be born in Virginia, so I was an Anglican. If I had been born in Connecticut, I might have been a Presbyterian or a Congregationalist. If I had been born in Maryland, I might have been a Catholic. You know, we we absorb a set of, of systems and values and procedures and rituals and liturgies from the place we happen to emerge. And I happen to be a Virginian, and therefore I'm an Episcopalian by affiliation. But as we grow up, we begin to question some of these doctrines and some of these systems. We ask ourselves difficult questions. Is there a God? If so, what are his intentions? Does he answer prayers? Did he send his son to be sacrificed for our redemption? What is expected of us? Is Allah different from Yahweh? Is Yahweh different from the Buddha? Is the Buddha different from the Manitou of the Algonquin Indian tribes? As we grow into maturity, we begin to ask ourselves serious questions about these things. And we should never do it in a scoffing or irreverent way. We should do it with the deepest sense of earnestness and sincerity. But as I began to think for myself, I couldn't be a Trinitarian. I couldn't believe in 3 in 1 and 1 in 3, the, 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 the Christian concept of the Trinity. I, I couldn't believe in the virgin birth. I couldn't believe in the miracles. Uh, I couldn't believe in the raising of Lazarus or, for that matter, the resurrection of Jesus. I frankly didn't believe that he was the Christ. And so then I thought, well, here I am in an Anglican community where I'm required by law to attend Anglican services. I'm required by law to pay taxes for the upkeep of the church. I can be fined for non-compliance. How is that free? I should be free to formulate for myself what I believe about these essential questions, and if they differ from that of the community that I'm in, that should be no penalty. That should not marginalize me or cause me any legal or financial or social grief. So I believe very strongly in this principle, sir, that the mind is utterly free, that the state has no right to intrude into your conscience. The state has a right to force you to obey the law, but the state can't force you to believe in this God or that God or this Redeemer or the Holy Spirit or anything else. The mind is utterly sovereign with respect to our conscience. And the state is always mistaking itself and acting tyrannically if it attempts to coordinate our religious affiliations or sensibilities. And so that bill, which was, as I say, passed in 1786, is maybe the most important thing that I ever did. And it became famous even in my time when I went to Europe in 1784. I was well known already for the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, not nearly so well known for the Declaration of Independence. In fact, most people had no idea that I was the principal author of the Declaration of Independence.
0: And the, the last item, sir, from your epitaph is a father of the University of Virginia. And I think many people think that its it's pride and its design, its architecture, and deservedly so. But your statement about it was, it was the diffusion of knowledge among the people. And I suspect that is the more important point.
1: Yes. A republic is a very interesting system of government. Because instead of having an aristocrat or a king or a high priest, some one entity that uh, makes decisions for the rest of us on our behalf ideally instead of that in a republic every citizen participates in the government of uh, the community in which he lives and to do that well we have to have some training we have to understand natural rights we have to understand the artificiality of any government we need to know how how the fruits of life are distributed across a community we need to know what a community needs to do to protect itself from foreign invasion, and so on. There's a, a long list of, of things that any polis, any polity must do. And although we have instincts and common sense, this is a, a universal birthright, we still need some actual civics training. So I wanted to make sure that the, the principles of 1776, this remarkable new start for humanity in the new world, would not diminish over time, or or be extinguished altogether, but that it would perpetuate itself from one generation to the next, and that needs to be inculcated by way of a strong, small r Republican curriculum. And so, yes, the architecture uh, is handsome. I'm proud of it. the The lawn is is I think pastoral and beautiful. I'm very pleased with it. It, it became a template for for colleges and universities in the United States. I, I think it's a a symbol of enlightenment in addition to everything else. But, but its real purpose is to create, over generations, the principles of people who can govern themselves rationally and with good sense.
0: Thank you, Mr. Jefferson. We need to take a short break from this conversation, but when we come back, Mr. Bergen has... A number of specific items that he would like you to comment on. And when we return, I'll present those to you with your permission, sir. Of course, sir. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour. Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with President Thomas Jefferson. And this week, we're speaking with Mr. Jefferson about his core principles, prompted by a letter from a listener, Mr. Tom Bergen. Welcome back, Mr. Jefferson.
1: Thank you, citizen.
0: As I said, I wanted to ask you some specific items that Mr. Bergen submitted for you to comment on. And the first is, the people are sovereign. Sovereign. Um, you wrote to Joseph Willard in 1789 saying, liberty is the great parent of science and of virtue, and a nation will be great in both ways in proportion as it is free.
1: as yes, the people are sovereign. Sovereignty over time has existed in a range of different ways. So in an absolutist system, if it's King James I in England uh, or Louis XIV, In France, the king is sovereign. All power comes from him. In other systems, there might be an oligarchy or an aristocracy, and they are the sovereign. But here in the United States, the people are the sovereign. The people of the United States uh, hold all the authority of this republic in their own hands, uh, collectively. And they make their will known from time to time by way of elections or by persuading their representatives to do the right thing. But the sovereignty is in the people. And as I said, with respect to the Declaration of Independence, if the people feel that that sovereignty is not being well attended to by their chosen representatives, whether it's the president or a senator or a governor or a justice of the peace, the people have a right to to dismiss those representatives and to choose better ones. And if the system becomes so hidebound that that there's no remedy within the electoral process, then the the citizens, because they have this sovereignty in their hands, have the right to dissolve that government and to substitute for a new and better one. And so this is a key of the United States of America, that here the people our sovereign. A king like James I of England, who began his reign in 1603 and ended it at his death in 1625, actually believed that he was divinely touched, that God himself had intended James of Scotland, James I of England, as he was then known, to be the sovereign over several millions of people in England over the entire population, that this is known as the divine right of kings. It's insane. It's absurd. First of all, no one person um, can assure the rest of us that that he is God's chosen representative on earth. That takes some boldness, some hubris. But secondly, God didn't intend monarchy. God intended freedom. And when we come into a polity, when we create a social compact, create a a government, the idea is for the people to yield to that government only such functions as they prefer not to do themselves. But they've not yielded their sovereignty to that government. They've only entrusted that government to do things on their behalf. Mr.
0: Bergen's next point for discussion is limited government. You wrote, sir, Every government degenerates when trusted to the rulers of the people alone. The people themselves, therefore, are its only safe depository.
1: No question about that. And and, and here's the, I suppose you'd say, the political or sociological truth. That if you create a government with great idealism and, and purity of intention, and it is uh, reigned in and and kept from from extending itself beyond the powers you have granted to it in the written constitution, that's all fine and good. But over time, the people will begin to go to sleep and will pursue their daily interests. And the government will begin to aggrandize itself and take on new functions and and create new offices and new bureaus and intrude itself more and more into the lives of the economy and into the the private lives of its citizens. This is inevitable. I, I, I'm a deep student of history, and I know of no time in the history of the planet when a government, no matter what it was at the beginning, didn't grow and become sloppy and hidebound and wasteful, and maybe tyrannical. And so, once you create a constitution, you can't go to sleep. You now you have to guard it, and to guard it from doing things that were never intended, you have to show eternal vigilance. And that's why when I got into the great dispute with Hamilton over the, the Bank of the United States in 1791, it wasn't about a bank, really, although the bank was a bad idea. It was about constitutional interpretation, and Hamilton's view was that the Constitution is elastic that it should grow with the country, that it should do things that maybe weren't enumerated or co- even contemplated by the, the men who crafted it in, in Philadelphia. My view is exactly the opposite, that a constitution has a restraining power, that it, it we enumerated the things that government could do, you know, coin money and conduct foreign policy and wage war and tax its citizens. We enumerated those things in Article One of the Constitution of the United States because we wanted to limit government to do those things and not other. But Hamilton comes along just a few years after ratification and says, oh, no, no, we need a bank. And the bank's not enumerated in the Article 1, so let's just do it because we believe in the general welfare of the country, because we think it's a useful thing to do. Well, Once you go down that path, government is going to find other useful things to do, and is going to stretch the necessary and proper clause and the general welfare clause of the Constitution until you essentially have no constitutional restraints whatsoever. And so the people need to stay awake, and they need to be deeply suspicious of government at all times. And they must understand that government is going to try to do things that government is not intended to do. And if you're not pretty ornery about that, you will eventually uh, live in a sloppy and maybe tyrannical system.
0: Mr. Bergen points out also that uh, you were a strong believer in individual self-reliance and and I would say,
1: and self-sufficiency, correct? Of course, every person should be self-sufficient if he can. I mean you know if you live on an island uh, and you're alone and you wake up in the morning and you're hungry, you're going to go find food. You're not going to wait for God to deliver manna or for some ship to come to port and and leave you a loaf of bread. If you want to eat, you have to go out and plant wheat or oats or gather up coconuts or breadfruit. If you want to, uh, if you have another neighbor, let's say there are two or three or five families. Now, if you want to have uh, a bridge over the creek, you either have to build it yourself or you have to cooperate with your neighbors in order to do it. But but things don't just happen. Things aren't done for you. You need to be self-sufficient. And in, the, in the ideal world, if there were one, every single human being would be 100% self-sufficient. In other words, everybody would work. Everybody would pay their bills. Everybody would raise their children. Everybody would pay their taxes. Everybody would obey the laws. Everybody would respect their neighbor's property and, and their neighbor's rights, and we would need no government. We'd be, we'd be self-governing in, in the fullest sense of the term, and we would be self-reliant. Now, that doesn't always work. But with the great land base we have in the American West, you know, the Louisiana Purchase and beyond, we should have hundreds and hundreds of years of safety because there's always free land out beyond the horizon for people to take up, as opposed to, say, Paris. Or London, where you have a permanent unemployed class. So as long as we can be self-sufficient, we will be happy at some point. Especially if you create cities, you're going to have a dependency class and you're going to have to decide how to handle this. Because if you don't either get them work or get them relief, they're going to rob banks. They're going to go take what they need. In other words, not everybody accepts the challenge of self-reliance. There are people who are mentally feeble or physically uh, debilitated, and there are people who are just lazy. And this creates a terrible problem for government. But ideally, if we have an agrarian system and a good public educational system, the fewest number, the fewest possible percentage of the population will be dependent.
0: Fair enough, Mr. Jefferson, we understand your principles. I, I know that uh, you you uh, had a number of poverty proposals to deal with those less fortunate. But what about slavery, sir? This is an issue that goes against the grain of many of the things that you've stated today.
1: Yes, and of course, my dependency on slave labor would seem to make me at least potentially a hypocrite. In talking about self-reliance, so I, I, I simply accept that. I, I would say I would just put it this way on this occasion: slavery is almost a, a visitation of darkness that came to the New World, beginning in 1619, and it befuddled us, and it's tragic, and I am myself complicit in that tragedy. I perpetuated that tragedy. And in some ways, it, it has to undermine all that I have been saying today about an ideal America, but I don't want to get stuck there. I'm, I'm certainly willing to acknowledge my guilt and complicity here, but I don't think that, that my principles are necessarily shattered just because I was so imperfect uh, an embodiment of those principles in this, in this one respect.
0: There are many Americans today who do discount your achievements just based on that. Every generation commits sins. Some generations' sins are darker than others, but let us move on. I wanted to ask you about fiscal responsibility and restraint, and sir, forgive me, I'm not asking about your personal finances, I'm asking about government finances.
1: I advocated a balanced budget provision in our constitution. As you know, I wasn't one of its crafters. I was in Europe at the time. And I hope that we would have an amendment requiring a balanced budget. And, and here's why. People don't like to pay taxes. They do so because they are committed to the republic and they understand that it's a, an important social responsibility. But they want those taxes to be used very carefully. And if you have a balanced budget, this forces government to make hard choices about what programs to fund and at what level. But if you can borrow monies, not only does this create conditions of inflation and the destabilization of the value of our system, but it allows government to begin to do other things. That the, the, In other words, the tether, the lease that we have on government begins to slip away when government can simply borrow instead of come to us and ask us for an increase of taxes. So we need to keep a a handle on spending in government by insisting that it balance its books and that it pay its bills on an annual basis. And, and it goes further, sir, because a, a government that can borrow is a government that can wage war. If you have a system in which government gets a percentage of our, of our income for taxes, and, and then it creates a budget using all or most of that uh, annual revenue, and then it wants to go to war with Canada, or it wants to go to war with Mexico, that government has to come back to the people and say, this emergency has come up. We're going to have to fund this war. Our best estimates are that it's are going to cost such and such millions of dollars. We're therefore going to have to tax you more to pay for that. If, if that were the case, if government, every time it wanted to go to war, had to come to us and say that your taxes are going up, and they may be going up severely, and we need you to decide whether you authorize this war, sir, so there would be no wars, or the, such wars as we had would be purely defensive wars of absolute necessity, but there would be no frivolous wars, there would be no um, uh, so optional wars, there would be no wars of pride or envy If the people can hold in the capacity of government to spend, governments will live more modestly and will not become adventurers in the world's arena.
0: Sir, I I understand your point, and I, I, in principle, sir, I I agree with you. But we as citizens elect officials in in good faith, and uh, we trust them to make the right decisions be it war or or other things. Where does that line get crossed? I mean, it may be that government knows things that we don't know um, and decides that we have to do some kind of military action in order to prevent future um, entanglements or, or future disasters for the United States. Where is that line, sir? When do we not trust those officials?
1: Well, the Founding Fathers at Philadelphia, the 55 men who created the Constitution, were pretty strong on this. They said that all wars had to begin in the House of Representatives. They can't begin in the Executive, although the Executive can, of course, defend our coasts and harbors temporarily. They can't begin in the Senate. They have to begin in the House. And why? Because the House is that body which is closest to the people. So on two questions, war and revenues, the Founding Fathers at Philadelphia said those Those pieces of legislation have to start in the House of Representatives. and That wasn't some sort of a, a, a sop to the House of Representatives. It was a principle that the House, being close to the people, will then consult the people before it does any dangerous things. So if you're going to have wars that the executive takes on prior to explicit legislation enabling it by the House of Representatives and by the Congress, then you want presidents of the very highest character. Give me George Washington. Give me James Madison. Give me John Adams. But don't give me Aaron Burr. Don't give me Andrew Jackson. You need your presidents, your leaders, to be people of the most extraordinary personal integrity and moral character. And then, if you have someone like George Washington, and he comes to us and says, look, there isn't time for me to go to Congress. This is really important. I'm going to do this on, on behalf of the future of this country. Then we will defer to him, for time at least. But if it's Aaron Burr, why would we defer to him? He's an adventurer. He's a I wouldn't defer to Hamilton. He's a warmonger. And so, yes, there has to be some discretion to save the country in times of absolute emergency and sometimes government does know things that the people are not yet in possession of the knowledge wherewith to make good decisions but i'm for as many controls on the war-making powers of the united states government as as possibly we can invent
0: well lastly sir in the moments we have left i wanted to ask you about education are your views on education during your time were considered Provocative by many. Um, but you believed in an engaged and informed citizenry and that education uh, sh- should be an institution locally controlled. Do I have it
1: right? Yes. Um, that government is best which is closest to your own home. And education is a, a complex thing because it's partly based in family. You know, we educate our children in our nurseries, we educate people around the kitchen table, we educate people around the fireplace, we also then create educational systems, and they should be public in my opinion, because public education brings in everybody, not just the elite. Education is essential. In fact, I would say that education is very nearly the elixir. In other words, it's very nearly the universal answer to all human problems. Give me a set of human problems and turn me loose with public education done by truly gifted educators. And I promise you that almost all human problems will be solved. It's ignorance, obscurantism, the the, the desire by church authorities to keep people in superstition, the desire by government to keep people from transparency in in the workings of government. This is what creates chaos and madness and war and class struggles. When there is transparency and when the people are well informed and, and able to think for themselves, Almost all human problems will disappear like the fog when the sun rises in the morning.
0: Thank you so very much for sharing your views on your core principles this week, Mr. Jefferson. I have enjoyed this conversation. You are certainly welcome, sir. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour. of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation, well, at least this week, it was our weekly conversation with President Jefferson. And we are now joined by the gentleman who portrays Mr. Jefferson, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. And this was interesting. uh, This came from uh, a gentleman who bears mention, uh, Tom Bergen. He suggested that we talk to Mr. Jefferson about some of his core principles, his core beliefs. And so uh, it's a conversation we haven't had before.
1: And Tom and I uh, met in France. He was on the the French uh, cultural tour that I led in in September and October, and he's an extraordinary uh, man. And he uh, came up to me one day on the bus and said he had an idea for a program. I'm always delighted when that happens. And although he had he had a slightly different program in mind, we still are talking about the core principles of Jefferson. And so I really want to thank Tom for his suggested and his input on all of this. Um, you know, I just so enjoy the cultural tours and, and the people who come on them are largely people from the Jefferson Hour. And a lot of them have had a law, you know, a, a fair amount of exposure to Jefferson's ideas. And so many of them regard themselves as Jeffersonians. Now there's the odd Hamiltonian among them. But most of the people that come on these journeys have been inspired by Thomas Jefferson into wanting a more Jeffersonian life, and that's certainly true of Tom, and I so appreciate uh, the suggestion that he made. You know, David, uh, so many things come to mind for this program, so I just want to begin here, and I know you have some thoughts too. war. Think of the Iraq War. We went into the Iraq War on what turned out to be false pretenses, that there were weapons of mass destruction, that, and we must urgently uh, prevent them from being used. This may have been a, a set of lies. It was certainly wishful thinking. And I think the American public was skeptical of this idea. They were pretty skeptical of this rationale for the war. But we went along with it. The war soon turned sour. We didn't really know Sunni from Shia, and we were able to to displace Saddam Hussein, but we didn't realize the, the madness, the pandemonium, the utter breakdown of the social order in Iraq that would soon follow. And it became a nightmare, and the American people grew less and less willing to, to keep this war going. And finally, public opinion was such that we had to pull out. And, and by pulling out, we left things in even a worse condition. You know, in some limited sense, Iraq would have been better had we never gone at all. If Jefferson's system prevailed and President G.W. Bush had come to the American people and said, you know, I've decided that we need to invade Iraq. I think there are weapons of mass destruction there. I'll try to convince you that that's true, and I need you each to take out your checkbooks and write a check for $78,500. That's about what this thing is going to cost. and and, And there may be cost overrun, so I may be back. But we can't fight this unless you reach into your pockets and pay a surcharge to the government of the United States, because this thing has to get funded. If that had happened, there would have been no war in Iraq. The American people would have said, well, you know you have to be a lot more convinced of of clear and present danger to the very security of the United States to want to spend $78,000. So that's what Jefferson had in mind, that people are all too willing to go to war. And the Iraq war is a perfect example of that. Governments are all too willing to go to war. Look what Putin has done in Ukraine. I'm not making the moral equivalents. And by going to war in Iraq, we did a ruinous thing that destabilized the Middle East and set back the United States, maybe permanently, but certainly in a fundamental way. The people are wiser than that. The people would not have gone along with this, and they particularly would not have gone along with this if they knew that they'd have to pay for it. The only reason that we get away with this kind of maneuvering in the 21st century and the late 20th century is that we just print money. We just borrow money. And so, of course— if you say to the people, "We're going to invade Iraq, but it, you know it's not going to change anything. There won't be any rationing. Um, You'll have all the gasoline you want. The prices in the stores will remain the same. Your taxes won't go up. Um, all we're going to do is borrow a bunch of money and do this. So you know, don't worry about it. Go about your business." That makes it so easy to accept. But if the people thought, "Do I want to spend my annual salary to fund a war of dubious legitimacy?" They would have said Uh uh-uh, we're not doing it, or convince us. Convince us that this is a just war. And so I'm with Jefferson 100% on this. It just seems to me that when we have a constitutional revision, and we desperately need one, reigning in the dogs of war is one of the most important things we can do. Think of it, David. You and I are about the same age. We grew up at the end of the Korean War. We lived through the nightmare of the Vietnam War. Then there's been the repeated wars in the Middle East, and what have we accomplished in any of them? What's the best thing that can be said of all of these ruinous wars that the United States has fought since 1960? Profit. You think, you think it's munitions and profit and the economy and capitalism.
0: Uh, there's a statement you've made in the course of these many years of doing this show that just keeps ringing in my ears, you know. And it's Adam saying, have you looked around, Mr. <laughs> Jefferson? So let me say, have you looked around, Mr. Jenkinson? It's a wonderfully optimistic viewpoint uh, to say, well, oh, okay, you open your checkbooks and we're not going to do that. You know, th- you know that's never going to happen.
1: Right? Why is that wonderfully optimistic? Why wouldn't that be baseline economics? I love it.
0: I think it's great. And I think it, you know people should understand where their tax dollars go and, and maybe they would... Uh, rise up and maybe they would say, well, that's good. You know, I'm, I'm government's never going to give back that much power to citizens. Then
1: we're not a republic.
0: Citizens are never going to push that hard to have that much power. You might, but, but have you looked
1: around, Mr. Jenkinson? <laughs> I don't, I don't agree with your cynicism on this. And, you know, you are an idealist. Oh, it's
0: not cynicism. It's actual. it's just, it's realistic.
1: Let's move on. So this, I've made my point and I've made it as strongly as I can, and it's a purely Jeffersonian point.
0: And, and I love it, and I'm so glad that you said it, and it pains me to have to take the other side, but, hey, it's radio.
1: It's radio. So the <laughs> second thing is slavery. You know, it had to come up today because Jefferson's going on and on about self-reliance and the ideal citizen takes care of everything he needs in his life and so on. And you think, well, he, you know, he's, he owns other human beings, and so it just... You, this led to one of the most hilarious moments in the history of the Jefferson Hour before your time when Bill Crystal was the host back in Reno, and we were going over Jefferson's Ten Commandments. And one of them is, uh, never ask another to do what you can do for yourself. And when we got to it, we both started laughing. We couldn't help ourselves. I mean, it was spontaneous. We thought, what? How could Jefferson have have written that down when he had 600 human beings working for him in the course of his life? And then another one was, never spend your money before you have it. And at that point, it broke down completely. And there was actually like a 15-minute period where we were just giggling and laughing. And beside us crying, the tears were coming down our cheeks. And we had to actually cut out 92% of it. But even then, it's a famous program because people heard that the hypocrisy, that you know, humans are, are we are all inconsistent. We all have a lot to answer for. None of us can look in the mirror with, with full attention that in varying degrees, we're hypocrites and we're inconsistent and and we have blind spots and prejudices and and, weaknesses and neuroses and so on. Everybody, every single human being, some more than others, I plenty. And if you look in the mirror rigorously, it's really rough to go on. But when Jefferson could live with such a wall of separation between his rational, utopian, imaginative life, which I adore, and then his Practical existence, which never ask another to do something you can do for yourself i mean what 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 is the absolute other end of the spectrum from that except slavery if If you were asking for
0: my counsel, I would say uh again, have you looked for right? human beings are complicated, they just are I mean think of great artists that you admire uh, uh great authors that you admire, and there there's darkness in in all of us more in some of us than others. No, no question. I'm just saying that... But, 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 you know, back to Jefferson, all of these great things, you know, people are sovereign. He wanted limited government. He wanted individual self-reliance. He wanted fiscal responsibility in government. National independence, entanglements with none. Uh, these are all good
1: things. And character. I, you know, when you asked about, aren't there times when government must be trusted, and then Jefferson says, yeah, if, if everyone were George Washington, you know, yeah. if, if everyone had that kind of character, but of course they don't. And today we have senators who are buying and selling stocks minutes before the pandemic shuts down the American economy. You know, we have, we live with this and they get away with it. And even the, when the Senate ethics committee looks at them, they, oh, you know, they, they kind of slap their hand a little or, or say that that's too ambiguous. There isn't any, there isn't anything there. There's nothing there. And so we live in this time when corruption is routinely accepted. You know, Donald Trump was charging the Secret Service double, triple, five times the usual rate at his hotels. But the it, corruption like- is is routinely accepted in this country now.
0: I agree with you. And, I, you know, we, we've just been through the election. We had that delightful conversation last week with uh, Lindsey Travinsky and you talking about the election. And, you know, we, we don't have a lot of statesmen. That, you know, I don't know if we ever, if we ever have, or if there's just a few that have have really stood out, but it's not like there are, there are leaders who have uh, put the nation's interests above all other things and that are eloquent and can speak out, which, you know, occasionally we do get emails about when are you going to run for office, Clay?
1: Yeah, well, if they give me the 60, well, I'll start with the ranch and then the $60 million. I'm, (laughs) you know, you said we spent $16 billion on this election. I'll take a fraction of that. I would love to be a, a statesman. It, yeah,
0: you know, that was a great point that we just kind of let go in that last discussion. You know, and it was, six, according to the New York Times, the article I read, $16.7 billion on the elections. And then you pointed out the national endowment. Yeah, that, that bears repeating. Could you do that? Yeah, the
1: NEH, my favorite public agency— which funds the State Humanities councils. It funded Chautauqua. It, it, it funded the work that I do. It, 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 uh, you, there's a footprint of the NEH everywhere in this country. It funds Ken Burns films and other documentaries. It funds museum exhibits. Um, it, the lecture series in your community is probably in part funded by the, the State Humanities Council of your state. And it does this noble work on about under $200 million per year. And so then you have an election in which people are saying, it was all a lie. The election was stolen. No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. I tell you, the election was stolen. Oh, that's great. That, that, that's what passes for debate in the country. you know. And here's another thing about that. The election that just happened, David, $16.7 billion worth, how much did this country talk about global climate change and how to decide what weight to give it in our public councils? I mean, this is. some people think this is the existential issue of our times, I'm not sure that that's true, but it is certainly one of the existential issues of our times. And almost no debate or dialogue occurred on this subject in the United States of America after spending $16.7 billion in this election. Great nations talk about the things that they need to talk about. Immigration is one of them. Global climate change and, and, and global warming is another. Uh, the plight of our rivers in the American West related to climate change, of course, is another, forest fires. I mean, we need to be talking about the, these huge things that are challenges to the very survival of our republic, much less the happiness of the American people. And instead, if I went to five or six cities in the course of the campaign, and each time I turned on the television and watched the local ads, and it was as if Adolf Hitler on one side were competing against Stalin on the other side, the ads were so over the top in the vilification. And if you vote for this, this, this criminal civilization on earth will end. We are, we are a frivolous, frivolous nation. And to call us a republic is just a contradiction in terms. And when you say, you know, have you looked around that that, that you know, quoting me, pretending to quote Adams, I disagree with this on this question. A republic can only work if there is a relatively high level of civic virtue, and they don't all have to be George Washington or Cincinnatus, but it only works if there is a relatively high level of integrity and character in our leaders. Without that, you can't have it. Then you need a more you need a more authoritarian government if you're not prepared to have people of character. And we don't. You and I could name five or ten people of character in our national politics if we struggled at it for an hour or two. But 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 any given roster of these people is going to show that they're schnooks, that they're cowards, that they're that they're cretins, that they don't do their homework, that they're lazy, that they're corrupt, and that sounds pretty powerful. But it is true. Earlier, I
0: made some comment in reference to radio. <laughs> I'm wondering if we're still on. You know, I, I'm glad for that rant. I I appreciate it, and and I'm I'm glad you got it out, and I I. Pretty much agree with it. But let's go back to Jefferson's core principles.
1: That's it. That's what this came from. Because if you outline these principles, and I get to be Jefferson and I get to lay out the ideal society per war, per taxes, per government, per character, uh, per education, and we lay out these beautiful utopian concepts, then there's a deflation when you actually do look around and realize oh, it's all broken. You know all those beautiful things that Jefferson says make for a great society. They lift me. They make me want to live in Jefferson's world. They want me to live in a Jeffersonian republic without slavery. And then you look around at the world that actually exists, and you feel like Jonathan Swift. Savage indignation when you see the abuse of those ideals in our time. And so, yes. I agree with you. Let's stick with Jefferson here, but but you but you see of course that it it's a judgment of us. Yes. But there there are there are bright points.
0: There are those who who do good work and help their communities and and worry about the right things. Uh so as we come to a close for this week, I I want to thank you and Mr. Jefferson as always for a a really good conversation. I hope people enjoyed it and took it in the right spirit. And leave us, if you would, sir, with some of your famous
1: Jeffersonian optimism. I believe in this country. I believe that our Bill of Rights is one of the most extraordinary documents in the world. I believe that we strain and that there is a very substantial percentage of the American people that want to live in Jefferson's Republic and work at it and strain at it and give parts of their lives to it. I was in voting the other day in Bismarck North Dakota and some people I know were um, were sitting at the at the at the desk in the, in the in the polling place and they gave their whole day to helping people find the right documents and to ease them into the system and to explain what was about to happen and you know they weren't paid for this they they believe in democracy and so they gave a portion of their week to make it possible for people to come and and effortlessly or nearly effortlessly uh, take on their civic obligation of voting when I saw that I thought that's what we need that's they did that because they believe in our system and they know that it's in trouble and there are millions of such people around this country David and you are one of them and so of course there's reason for optimism but but the forces of darkness are extremely rich and powerful and we're going to have to really address that As always, thank you so much, sir. We'll see you all next week for another edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
2: The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826 and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.